Whether you do it intentionally, accidentally, or not at all, your journey with diversity, equity, and inclusion starts before you even launch your organization. It starts with the idea of your organization. It starts with your founding documents, with the vision, mission, and values of your organization. Then, it extends to how you screen, interview, and hire your staff, and it continues with how you onboard, train, and even evaluate your staff. And those starting points should always consider the demographic soil that your organization is planted in. And if your organization is in the United States, understand that the soil of the United States is a changing one in just about every way. So whether you are from the greatest generation, a baby boomer, you're from Generation X, or even if you're a millennial or from Gen Z, understand that our current environment is not the same one you grew up in or that you came of age in. One such change in our demographic soil is that we are becoming a majority-minority country. For example, in 1960, the racial makeup of the country was about 88% white, with the rest of the racial and ethnic makeup of the country comprising of African-American, Latino, Latina, Native American, Asian, and so forth, making up the remaining 12%. Now, fast forward to 2020. Yes, 2020, that dumpster fire of a year when the entire planet took a massive and mandatory COVID-induced pause. In that year, the white population of the country had shrank by almost a third from 88% in 1960 to 58% in 2020, while the Latino and Latina population grew from 2% to just over 19% in the same time. And in 2020, African-Americans were 12% of the population, and the remaining percent were Asian-American, Pacific Islander, Native American, two or more races, and so forth. Now, fast forward to 2060, the white population will have decreased by nearly half to 43%. The black population will stay almost constant at 13%, and 13% of the country will be Native American, Asian American, Pacific Islander, two or more races, and other. Now, the Latino and Latina population in 2060 is predicted to swell to 31%. So, by 2060, nearly one in three Americans will be Latino or Latina. So what does that all mean for DEI? It means that we are in the midst of one of the greatest political and social challenges of modern times, something that is being called the browning of America. The challenge is that despite the steady and significant increase in the Latino and Latina population of the country, the dominant culture in the American society is still deeply invested in the idea of whiteness, that is to say the idea of white as normal and white as natural, and deeply invested in the idea of Eurocentrism. And this change is happening amid that dominant culture that may not be too happy about it. Hey, y'all, it's Abdullah, and this is the Equileader Podcast. Welcome to the Equileader Podcast. I'm Abdullah Muhammad, 
DEI educator, consultant, strategist, and a 25-year veteran of these management and leadership streets. The Equileader is here to provide practical and actionable content for the frontline equity professional who cares about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. This is your podcast, and you are the Equileaders. So without further ado, let's get into it. Equileaders, what's good and welcome back. Y'all know it's been a minute since we had a fresh episode, but your man has been in these leadership streets leading. As I've said several times before, I'm first and foremost a practitioner. I am in the trenches keeping customers and my staff happy, keeping them productive, hiring new staff and all that other stuff. Not to mention managing a very busy family life and doing vital equity work in my community. And sometimes the tyranny of the urgent can crowd out the important, but I definitely intend to keep showing up and delivering this fresh Equileader content for y'all. By the way, if you haven't listened to our Christian Soldier podcast, hop on over to that show and give that a listen as well. And I especially want you to check out February's content. In February, I did a Black History Month collaboration with the Ambassador podcast featuring Jared Cole and the equity director for my city's school district, Dr. Anthony Jones. It was a huge blessing to have some prolonged conversations about equity and justice with these two committed and passionate men and people that I call friends. So we had a great time, and we probably had more laughs and more fun off off the mic than we did on. But links to that will be in the show notes, so check out those when you can. Okay, y'all, enough preamble. Let's get into it. So as I said in the opening teaser, not everyone is happy about this demographic shift. And the news of who is or who isn't happy is... Interestingly mixed, it is both not as dire as you'd imagine and probably exactly what you think. So social science research like that done by Yale psychologist Jennifer Richardson has taught us that when people are in the majority, either politically or socially, their sense or their awareness of race is not salient or it's dormant. But the prospect of being in the majority begins to stoke fears of resource threat or the threat of losing positive social capital, control of resources, loss of social cohesion and shared values, and so forth. And when people perceive that threat, it is powerful enough to change a person's thoughts about the minority groups and their actions toward them. So this is a very well-studied phenomenon in political science and psychology. Now, generally speaking, the average white person, and I'm using white here as a proxy for people in majority culture, the average white person reports feelings of warmth toward ethnic minorities, right? So in the research, the feelings fluctuate a little depending on the group being referred to, but again, generally positive feelings across the board. So we don't go around thinking that everyone is racist. Now, there's very little reported strong animus toward minorities consciously in these studies. Now, I say consciously because we all know what the research on implicit bias says. For example, of the people who take the Harvard IAT or implicit association test, more than two-thirds or 68% of the participants report a preference for European when compared to African-American. But equal leaders, be careful here. 
This is not saying that 68% of the white people are racist toward black people or harbor some animus towards us. It is only saying that the implicit preference is more positive toward white folks than black folks. Now, that's saying enough, but we also don't want to exaggerate what the results of the IAT says. But when the idea of threat and the loss of majority status is introduced, something very interesting happens. Some sense of zero-sum resentment or self-protection is activated, and some people who've come to be called white, Caucasian, whatever language you want to use, some of those folks feel they will lose when other minorities gain. So in the Yale study I referenced a moment ago, and in other studies like it, when race becomes a more salient detail for participants, those who read about demographic change showed a greater preference for their own racial groups. They were more likely to agree with statements like, I would rather work alongside of people from my same ethnic origin. And when participants of these studies felt less warm toward members of other races, those types of emotions were triggered. So this is our problem with demographic shifts in the workplace. As the country becomes more brown and more diverse and arguably more diverse in expressions of gender identity and sexuality as well, the social science research says that, says that many majority culture folks will perceive the social science research says that many majority culture folks will perceive a loss for themselves as our minority population grows. And as we have seen, this threat has already had some interesting results. This is arguably what was behind the rise of Trumpism, white nationalism, um, those people who stormed Congress on January 6, 2021, and in my city, the local opposition to equity efforts that are playing out in communities here and in communities and school boards across the country. In my own community, I am thoroughly convinced that this sentiment is also what was behind um, a political action group that we have here called Ames Deserves Better and the activist work being done by many evangelical Christians who are, by the way, mostly white. Message. But Americans actually are divided on whether they think the growing diversity of our country is a good thing. The good news is that most American adults do think it's a good thing, or at least that, it's, that it is neither good nor bad. So the Pew Research Center did a survey of these attitudes, and here's what they found. When they asked people how they felt about the country being majority Latino, Asian, and African-American by 2050, 35% of their respondents said that it would be somewhat or very good. 42% of respondents said that it is neither good nor bad. So basically, just it is what it is. And only 23% believed that it would be bad or very bad. Now, I say only 23%. That's great in statistics. But the effective difference is that one in four people think that the United States being a majority-minority country by 2050 is a bad or very bad thing. And that should give us pause. Now, the breakdown of who thinks it is bad or very bad at this point should be somewhat predictable. The highest percentage of people who think it'll be bad or very bad 
are people who identify as Republicans. 37% of them think that the United States as being a majority-minority country is bad or very bad. Now, 28% of white respondents felt this, as well as older survey respondents. So the older you are, the more likely you are to believe that the country being majority-minority is a bad or very bad thing, and the more right-leaning you are, that holds true as well. Now, links to all this information will be in the show notes, so it will definitely be worth a gander. Now, the situation I just described is what I believe was one of the two greatest challenges facing our modern work world. The A side of this challenge, the browning of America, and how it impacts our work world is what I want to focus on for the rest of this episode. Specifically, the challenge of using equity principles in recruiting, hiring, and in team building. The B side of this challenge is how to navigate a work environment with five generations of people in the workforce amid this seismic demographic and cultural shift. So that riff will come in a future episode, so be on the lookout for that one soon. Fun fact, the 2019 through 2020 school year was the first year in the history of the United States where the majority of children entering public school were non-white at about 49.3%. This was the lowest enrollment of so-called white students ever. And as you heard in the introduction of this episode, the bigger growth is by far from Latino and Latina folks. So the decline in the so-called white population and enrollment is due to a few factors, namely less migration from European countries and lower fertility rates and an aging population of white Americans. So white births per 1,000 are significantly lower than that of Latina and Latino births. And if the partisan anti-immigrant news media is to be believed, Latino and Latina population growth is due primarily to immigration. In leaders, that is simply not true. The growth is not due to an increase in immigration or to porous borders or those kinds of things. It is mostly domestic population growth. So the Census Bureau estimated that 78% of the population growth in Latino and Latina folks was due to high fertility, low relative age, and a decently long lifespan. And there are some who would say, well, that's all because these undocumented folks are coming here and having babies and are not U.S. citizens. So I'm not a demographer. I'm a political scientist and I'm a historian. But simply put, I also know how to peep game, and it really doesn't take any especially savvy person to get to the naked partisan rhetoric of this argument. So understand that the anti-immigrant sentiment aimed at Latino and Latina folks is squarely because of the anti-brown immigrant powers that be want to diminish or want to maintain their European cultural supremacy while trying to obscure that fact. They seem to be using the argument that they are just the numerical majority rather than the dominant culture. And that argument won't really hold water once those who have been racialized as white are at parity with Latino and Latina folks or when Latino folks become the numerical majority. And I promise you, the underlying Eurocentrist entitlement will be more on full display then. Now, here's the game. The very diversity of the country that we lauded when the majority of immigrants were European has become a massive 
problem now that they're not. Immigration has been a growing political issue since the 1970s, conveniently when the so-called white immigration explosion slowed down and when the demographic hegemony of white people began to decline. And like Brother Malcolm used to say, Oh, I say it, I say it again, you've been had. You've been took. You've been hoodwinked. Bamboozled. Let astray. Run amok. So that was a riff within a riff, but back to my point. The change in demographics and the increased focus on equity will tax any system that isn't ready for it. And it will do worse to systems that want to oppose it in favor of protecting the status quo. So as equity leaders, we should always keep in mind that systems and institutions are comprised of and constructed by individuals. As such, these systems and institutions are constructed and perpetuated one decision at a time. So the most robust and sustainable equity efforts must be aimed at the critical decision points of your organization. And that is where we as individuals can totally do our part. The right interventions at these critical decision points will, over time, produce tremendous results in your organization. Effective systems are inherently self-perpetuating, so individuals don't really have to do anything for those systems within our institution to work like clockwork. Once started, they tend to operate on sheer inertia. But we do have to do something different and exert enormous counterpressure to change the direction of the inertia. And one of the best places to interrupt the inertia and introduce some systems and processes that have strong equity foundations are in our recruiting and in our hiring. So here are some suggestions for using equity principles in recruiting and hiring. First, think about where you advertise. Most employers advertised at the usual places, places like LinkedIn, Indeed, Google Jobs, Career Builder, Dice, Snag a Job, so forth. The ladders, if you are a 100K plus earner per year, HireEdJobs.com for folks in that industry, and even other industry or trade specific sites or on city or county websites. But one of the realities of the new work world is that people don't just want a paycheck. They want to do meaningful work at a place that values them and values their contribution. Now, I could give a whole other riff about the evolution of organizational management from Friedrich Taylor to today, but suffice it to say that the scientific management method of those days all the way up to this competitive advantage style of management that happened from the 80s to the 2000s, those management methodologies have gone the way of Betamax recorders in this new work world. So one of the things that people want to know first is that they can bring their full selves to your workplace. Nowadays, people don't want to be cogs in your wheel. They want to work for companies that share their why or what author and management expert Simon Sinek calls their purpose, cause, or belief. People want to contribute. And one of the ways that we find those people are in certain niches like diversity niches such as diversity job boards or places like HBCU Connect, blackjobs.com, latpro.com, iHispano, Asian Hires, NAACP Career Center, 
PinkJobs.com, Out and Equal, LGBT Connect, Campus Pride, and many others. So examine your recruiting practices. And other than the virtual places and websites that I just mentioned, where do you do your physical recruiting and connecting? Are you even considering diversity, equity, and inclusion when you connect and when you advertise? So review your recruiting content and know how and where you source your candidates. If you're doing career fairs, are you doing them at places where you can find a diverse talent pool? Contact organizations doing well in these areas that you'd like to emulate. Read their blogs and their white papers. Find out how they are attracting and recruiting and retaining a diverse talent pool. Next, think about how your job descriptions are written. Are they just a list of position descriptions, qualifications, and requirements, or are they intentionally compelling to attract top talent? Again, people want to see themselves in the job and see themselves as a fit in your organization. And that is the responsibility of you as a leader in your HR department. And as someone who has interviewed several hundreds, if not thousands of people, and certainly screened many thousands of resumes during my career, I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, you are not looking for people who want or need a job. You are looking for people who are looking for a place to belong. Otherwise, to hire folks because you are filling a position is really expensive. So if you pursue your recruiting and hiring efforts like you're looking for a missing puzzle piece, you will have much better and less expensive results. At the end of the day, this is simply matchmaking. So here's an example of how your standard, run-of-the-mill, boring job posting sounds. Now, company names have been changed to protect the innocent and the oblivious. Example one. Seeking candidate with over seven years experience in HR management and talent acquisition within the supply chain technology industry. Responsible for the daily operations of human resource functions within the company. Serve as the link between the employees of the organization and ABC Inc.'s leadership team. The candidate will provide leadership for strategic staffing and planning, compensation and benefits, employee hiring and developing, labor relations, dot, 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 it goes on. So what do you think about this post? I think, yuck. It's functional. It gets the job done, arguably, but it is also a very large tell into the kind of place it'll be when you show up to do your work on day one. Now, by contrast, this company is looking for a missing puzzle piece. They are looking for people who are looking for them. They're trying to have a conversation. So this next example is going to be a company who used three conceptual themes to organize their post for maximum engagement. They used one, the role, two, why you'll love this role, and three, why we'll love you. So check this out, the role. Coaching and leadership development partner will design and develop an innovative yet comprehensive coaching strategy across the customer team at ABC Inc. You will also program manage through leader engagement, measuring success in in iterations, and then seamlessly scale coaching capabilities across the organization. 
you'll have the opportunity to build relationships with senior level business leaders in order to provide consultative guidance with measurable and demonstrable impact. You will work directly to support scaling a progressive people organization in a fast-growing, mission-driven technology company that values diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Your work will also directly enable our teams to contribute to building a high-engagement culture and environment, and it goes on and on. So, Equileaders, here's the question. Which place would you rather work for? Again, People don't want to be cogs in a wheel. They want to be valued contributors and partners. People want to go to work, quite simply, to change the world. Not the entire world, obviously, that's naive. But people want to go to work to change the universe of things they impact. And so when they do that, they want to work with organizations and people who feel the same way and who are committed to doing the same work. So the moral of the story is this. Look for people who contribute to the culture of your organization and do everything you can to find those folks who are aligned with your purpose, your cause, and your belief. Next, what is your resume review process? And ask yourself whether it reflects equity principles. Research shows that the average hiring manager looks at a resume for about seven seconds. Now, if there are fewer applicants, they may review it a little longer. Applicants with black-sounding or other racially distinctive names are 50% less likely to get an interview or a callback. And there's also discrimination based on age and based on gender and sexuality and obviously LGBTQ discrimination in the hiring process and certainly once on the job if they get the job in, in the first place. So according to a U.S. transgender survey, one in six of our trans friends said they lost a job because of their gender identity or expression. And nearly a third, 30% of those who had held a job reported being fired, denied a promotion, or subject to harassment or attack because of their transgender identity. And of course, there are more examples. But again, ask yourself, do you Ask equity-related questions in the interview, and do you seek a diverse talent pool for the things that are coming out of people's heads, their, their, their passion and their skill sets? So, for instance, one of the questions I used to ask in social work interviews went something like this. Given that most of our clients are poor and lower SES, what do you believe to be the causes of poverty? Now, during my career, I've supervised folks across several industries in retail, social work, home health workers and nurses, sales teams, behavioral interventionists, and people in accounting and finance. And it is my sincere belief that these types of questions work in just about every industry. To this day, I still ask candidates questions about explaining their experience working or interacting with customers or coworkers from diverse backgrounds. And in recent years, I've also included a question about working with people with diverse identities. Another thing you can do is take stock of whether you have women, ethnic minorities, LGBTQIA folks. They may not be out in your organization because they may feel unsafe. But ask yourself, do you have these folks at the table? And not just at the table because you invited them. Do you have these folks at the table constructing the table. 
So do you consider age, socioeconomic status, regional issues, political perspectives? Ask yourself and be honest about whether you really want to do the work of DEI in your organization in the first place. Message. So I was in a meeting with a church pastor recently who had a not so good track record with how his church treats diversity, especially racial and ethnic diversity and diversity of black people in particular. And he asked me what his next steps vis-a-vis being more open should be. On his face, that's a very solid and respectable question. But look deeper. So I thought for a second, and my response caught him more than a little off guard. I said something to the effect of, your church is one of the most strategic organizations that I know of. How is it that you have missed thinking strategically about your equity efforts? You've never asked mine or others outside opinion on your ministry efforts or growth strategy or missionary efforts. So why are you asking about what to do about DEI? In addition to churches, I personally have also had a version of this question posed to me by leaders in private sector companies, from law enforcement officials, and even from educators and school district leadership staff. My point to the pastor was obvious and direct, but not harsh. Successful and thriving organizations have more than proved their ability to solve complex problems that they are genuinely interested in. And when it comes to growing an organization, these leaders can be obsessed, if not a little monomaniacal. As someone who's also run businesses, I can tell you that business challenges have a miraculous way of getting solved if you want to grow. So to be flummoxed about equity really tells me a few things. It tells me that one, You are so utterly clueless about the depth of the problem in your organization that you really don't know where to start or where to look, which is genuinely respectable. Two, you see equity and inclusion as something ancillary to your organization rather than something essential. Or three, you are pursuing DEI because it is the flavor of the moment or because you feel you have to to not be sued. So this anecdote about the conversation with the church pastor illustrates the last piece of my summary. Ask yourself, are you using the same level of strategic thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion as you do with other areas of your organization, like branding, marketing, advertising, new product launches, expansion, church planting, fundraising, org structure, curriculum and instruction, and so forth? So take stock of Who is at the table contributing to the decision-making apparatus of your organization? Because that combination of that good ideas, that will help you really truly impact those critical decision points. So to summarize, ask yourself, what messages do you think your organization is sending about your current level of commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion? What message would your leaders your team members, and your customers say you're sending? Three, what diversity and inclusion efforts have you undertaken or are you undertaking? And lastly, when people exit your organization, are you encouraging them to be completely honest about how they see the leadership team and the organization's commitment to DEI and belonging? Now, This was just a primer to help you think about equity principles in your organization. It was designed to get you pointed in the right direction as you think about ways to practice equity at the front door of your organization. 
So be mindful of, again, of who is at the table making decisions. I can't stress that point enough. And be mindful of who is not bought in. Have conversations with them and coach them along. And if you really want to solve the problems and be ready for the challenging needs of the workforce over the next 20 to 30 years, you will. Equileaders, thanks for listening. I hope this information was helpful. So until next time, good luck in them trenches. I'm right there with you. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Equileader podcast. The Equileader is a production of Monarch Training and Development. 